Chapter eighty two of Thomas Wingfold, Curate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. Thomas Wingfold, Curate by George MacDonald. Eighty two. The Lawn. Leopold had begun to cough, and the fever continued. Every afternoon came the red flush to his cheek and the hard glitter into his eye. His talk was then excited, and mostly about his coming trial. To Helen it was terribly painful, and she confessed to herself that but for Wingfold she must have given way. Leopold insisted on seeing Mr. Hooker every time he called, and every time expressed the hope that he would not allow pity for his weak state to prevent him from applying the severe remedy of the law to his moral condition. But in truth it began to look doubtful whether disease would not run a race with law for his life, even if the latter should at once proceed to justify a claim. From the first Faber doubted he would ever recover from the consequences of that exposure in the churchyard, and it soon became evident that his lungs were more than affected. His cough increased, and he began to lose what little flesh he had. One day Faber expressed his conviction to Wingfold that he was fighting the disease at the great disadvantage of having an unknown enemy to contend with. "'The fellow is unhappy,' he said, "'and if that lasts another month I shall throw up the sponge.' He has a good deal of vitality, but it is yielding, and by that time he will be in a galloping consumption. You must do your best for him, said Wingfold, but in his heart he wished, with an honest affection, that he might not succeed. Leopold, however, seemed to have no idea of his condition, and the curate wondered what he would think or do were he to learn that he was dying. Would he insist on completing his confession and urging on a trial? He had himself told him all that had passed with the magistrate, and how things now were as he understood them, but it was plain that he had begun to be uneasy about the affair, and was doubtful at times whether all was as it seemed. The curate was not deceived. He had been present during a visit from Mr. Hooker, and nothing could be plainer than the impression out of which the good man spoke, nor could he fail to suspect the cunning kindness of George Bascombe in the affair. But he did not judge that he had now the least call to interfere. The poor boy had done as much as lay either in or out of him in the direction of duty, and was daily becoming more and more unfit either to originate or to carry out a further course of action. If he was in himself capable of anything more, he was in his present state of weakness utterly unable to cope with the will of those around him. Faber would have had him leave the country for some southern climate, but he would not hear of it, and Helen, knowing to what extremities it might drive him, would not insist. Nor, indeed, was he now in a condition to be moved, also, the weather had grown colder, and he was sensitive to atmospheric changes, as any creature of the elements. But after a fortnight, when it was now the middle of autumn, it grew quite warm again, and he revived, and made such progress that he was able to be carried into the garden every day. There he sat in a chair on the lawn with his feet on a sheepskin and a fur cloak about him, and for all the pain at his heart, for all the misery in which no one could share, for all the pangs of a helpless jealousy, checked only by a gnawing remorse, both of which took refuge in the thought of following through the spheres until he found her, cast himself at her feet, spoke the truth, and became, if he might, her slave forever, failing which he could but turn and go wandering through the spheres, seeking rest and finding none, save indeed there were some salvation, even for him in the bosom of his God. I say that, somehow, with all this on the brain and in the heart of him, the sunshine was yet pleasant to his eyes, while it stung him to the soul, the soft breath of the wind was pleasant to his cheek, while he cursed himself for the pleasure it gave him. The few flowers that were left looked up at him mournfully, and he let them look, nor turned his eyes away, but let the tears gather and flow. The first agonies of the encounter of life and death were over, and life was slowly wasting away. Oh, what might not a little joy do for him? 
but where was the joy to be found that could irradiate such a darkness even for one fair memorial moment one hot noon wingfield lay beside him on the grass neither had spoken for some time the curate more and more shrunk from speech to which his heart was not directly moved as to what might be in season or out of season he never would pretend to judge he said but even balaam's ass knew when he had a call to speak he plucked a pale red pimpernel and handed it over his head to leopold the youth looked at it for a moment and burst into tears the curate rose hastily it is so heartless of me said leopold to take pleasure in such a childish innocence as this it merely shows said the curate laying his hand gently on his shoulder that even in these lowly lovelinesses there is a something that has a root deeper than your pain that all about us in earth and air wherever eye or ear can reach there is a power ever breathing itself forth in signs now in a daisy now in a wind waft a cloud a sunset a power that holds constant and sweetest relation with the dark and silent world within us that the same god who is in us and upon whose tree we are the buds if not yet the flowers also is all about us inside the spirit outside the world and the two are ever trying to meet in us and when they meet then the sign without and the longing within become one in light and the man no more walketh in darkness but knoweth whither he goeth as he ended thus the curate bent over and looked at leopold but the poor boy had not listened to a word he said something in his tone had soothed him but the moment he ceased the vein of his grief burst out bleeding afresh he clasped his thin hands together and looked up in agony of hopeless appeal to the blue sky now growing paler as in fear of the coming cold though still the air was warm and sweet and cried oh if god would only be good and unmake me and let darkness cover the place where once was me that would be like a good god all i should be sorry for then would be that there was not enough of me left for the dim flitting will-o'-the-wisp of praise ever singing my thankfulness to him that i was no more yet even then my deed would remain for i dare not ask that she should die outright also that would be to heap wrong upon wrong what an awful thing being is not even my annihilation could make up for my crime or rid it out of the universe true leopold said the curate nothing but the burning love of god could rid sin out of anywhere but are you not forgetting him who surely knew what he undertook when he would save the world no more than you could have set that sun flaming overhead with its million mild billows and its limitless tempests of fire can you tell what the love of god is or what it can do for you if only by enlarging your love with the inrush of itself few have such a cry to raise to the father as you such a claim of sin and helplessness to heave up before him such a joy even to offer to the great shepherd who cannot rest while one sheep strays from his flock one prodigal haunts the dens of evil and waste cry to him leopold my dear boy cry to him again and yet again for he himself said that men ought always to pray and not faint for god did hear and would answer although he might seem long about it i think we shall find one day that nobody not the poet of widest sweep and most daring imagination not the prophet who soars the highest in his ardour to justify the ways of god to men not the child when he is most fully possessed of the angel that in heaven always beholds the face of the father of jesus has come or could have come within sight of the majesty of his bestowing upon his children for did he not if the story be true allow torture itself to invade the very soul's citadel of his best beloved as he went to seek the poor ape of a prodigal stupidly grinning amongst his harlots leopold did not answer 
and the shadow lay deep on his face for a while. But at length it began to thin, and at last a feeble, quivering smile broke through the cloud, and he wept soft tears of refreshing. It was not that the youth had turned again from the hope of rest in the Son of Man, but that, as every one knows who knows anything of the human spirit, there must be in its history days and seasons, mornings and nights, yea, deepest midnights. It has its alternating summer and winter, its storm and shine, its soft dews and its tempests of lashing hail, its cold moons and prophetic stars, its pale twilights of saddest memory, and its golden gleams of brightest hope. All these mingled and displaced each other in Leopold's ruined world, where chaos had come again, but over whose waters a mightier breath was now moving. And now, after much thought, the curate saw that he could not hope to transplant into the bosom of the lad the flowers of truth that gladdened his own garden. He must sow the seed from which they had sprung, and that seed was the knowledge of the true Jesus. It was now the more possible to help him in this way that the wild beast of his despair had taken its claws from his bosom, had withdrawn a pace or two, and crouched watching. And Wingfold soon found that nothing calmed and brightened him like talk about Jesus. He had tried verse first, seeking out the best within his reach, wherein loving souls have uttered their devotion to the man of men. But here also the flowers would not be transplanted. How it came about he hardly knew, but he had soon drifted into, rather than chosen, another way, which way proved a right one. He would begin thinking aloud on some part of the gospel story, generally that which was most in his mind at the time, talking with himself, as it were, all about it. He began this one morning as he lay on the grass beside him, and that was the position in which he found he could best thus soliloquize. Now and then, but not often, Leopold would interrupt him, and perhaps turn the monologue into dialogue. But even then Wingfold would hardly ever look at him. He would not disturb him with more of his presence than he could help, or allow the truth to be flavored with more of his individuality than was unavoidable. For every individuality, he argued, has a peculiar flavor to every other, and only Jesus is the pure, simple humanity that every one can love, out and out, at once. In these mental meanderings he avoided nothing, took notice of every difficulty, whether able to discuss it fully or not, broke out in words of delight when his spirit was moved, nor hid his disappointment when he failed in getting at what might seem good enough to be the heart of the thing. It was like hatching a sermon in the sun instead of in the oven. Occasionally, when having ceased, he looked up to know how his pupil fared, he found him fast asleep, sometimes with a smile, sometimes with a tear on his face. The sight would satisfy him well. Calm upon such a tormented sea must be the gift of God, and the curate would then sometimes fall asleep himself, to start awake at the first far-off sound of Helen's dress as it swept a running fire of fairy fog signals from the half-opened buds of the daisies and the long heads of the rip-grass, when he would rise and saunter a few paces aside, and she would bend over her brother to see if he were warm and comfortable. By this time all the old tenderness of her ministration had returned, nor did she seem any longer jealous of Wingfold's. One day she came behind them as they talked. The grass had been mown that morning, and also she happened to be dressed in her riding habit, and had gathered up the skirt over her arm, so that on this occasion she made no sound of sweet approach. Wingfold had been uttering one of his rambling monologues, in which was much without form, but nothing void. "'I don't know quite,' he had been saying, "'what to think about that story of the woman they brought to Jesus in the temple. I mean, how it got into that nook of the Gospel of St. John, where it has no right place. They didn't bring her for healing, or for the rebuke of her demon, but for condemnation. Only they came to the wrong man for that. They dared not carry out the law of stoning, as they would have liked, I suppose, 
even if Jesus had condemned her, but perhaps they hoped rather to entrap him who was the friend of sinners into saying something against the law. But what I want is to know how it got there, just there, I mean, betwixt the seventh and eighth chapters of St. John's Gospel. There is no doubt of its being an interpolation that the twelfth verse, I think it is, ought to join on to the fifty-second. The Alexandrian manuscript is the only one of the three oldest that has it, and it is the latest of the three. I did think once, but hastily, that it was our Lord's text for saying, I am the light of the world, but it follows quite as well on his offer of living water. One can easily see how the place would appear a very suitable one to any presumptuous scribe who wished to settle the question of where it should stand. I wonder if St. John told the lovely tale as something he had forgotten after he had finished dictating all the rest, or was it well known to all the evangelists, only no one of them was yet partaker enough of the spirit of him who was the friend of sinners to dare put it to written record, thinking it hardly a safe story to expose to the quarrying of men's conclusions. But it doesn't matter much. The tale must be a true one, only to think of just this one story of tenderest righteousness floating about like a holy waif through the world of letters, a sweet grey dove of promise that can find no rest for the sole of his foot, just this one story of all stories, a kind of outcast, and yet as a wanderer, oh, how welcome! Some manuscripts, I understand, have granted it a sort of outhouse shelter at the end of the Gospel of St. Luke, but it all matters nothing, so long as we can believe it, and tr true it must be, it is so like him all through. And if it does go wandering as a stray through the Gospels, without place of its own, what matters it, so long as it can find hearts enough to nestle in, and bring forth its young of comfort. Perhaps the woman herself told it, and, as with the woman of Samaria, some would and some would not believe her. Oh, the eyes that met upon her, the fiery hail of scorn from those of the Pharisees, the light of eternal sunshine from those of Jesus. I was reading the other day in one of the old miracle plays how each that looked on while Jesus wrote with his finger on the ground imagined he was writing down his individual sins, and was in terror lest his neighbor should come to know them. And wasn't he gentle, even with those to whom he was sharper than a two-edged sword, and oh how gentle to her he would cover from their rudeness and wrong. Let the sinless throw. And the sinners went out, and she followed, to sin no more. No reproaches, you see, no stirring up of the fiery snakes. Only don't do it again. I don't think she did it again. Do you? It was just here that Helen came and stood behind Leopold's chair. The curate lay on the grass, and neither saw her. End of chapter 82